On the morning of Saturday, October 15, 2005, Daniel Horowitz left his home at 1901 Hunsaker Canyon Road in Lafayette, a sleepy little suburb outside San Francisco, shortly before 8 a.m. Daniel was a prominent attorney in the area. He was headed to a meeting about a big, high-profile case he was working on. He was a criminal defense attorney, and he was defending a woman named Susan Polk. She had been charged with murdering her husband, a psychiatrist named Dr. Felix Polk. The trial became a media circus because Susan claimed that her late husband had sex with her beginning when she was a 14-year-old patient under his care. Eventually, Susan was convicted. But this case made national news, and so on that morning, Daniel had a lot on his mind. He woke up, went out to feed the dogs, then went back to his house. He saw his wife, 52-year-old Pamela Vitale. When he left that morning, he told police that she was sound asleep. During the day, Daniel tried to call her a couple of times, but Pamela didn't answer. He said that he thought that was a little bit weird, but he wasn't particularly worried about that because they were both busy people and he knew she was running around that day. He worked all that Saturday. And after he left the office, he made a few stops, worked out at the gym, and then stopped at a grocery store on the way home. When he pulled into the driveway, he was surprised to see that Pam's white Mercedes sedan was still there. He thought she would have been gone already because he knew that she had plans to go to the ballet with a friend. So he would later tell investigators that he had an uneasy feeling when he got out of the car. He grabbed the groceries and his computer bag from the trunk and walked to the front door. That's when he saw the dark, strange-looking smears on the front door. Then he opened the door and saw his wife, Pamela, lying there on the floor. He later said in an interview that at first, there was a flash in his mind, like a crime scene photo. He saw the blood everywhere. And because he was a criminal defense lawyer, part of his mind went to work mode and he could see the fight that had broken out in the house. His mind was reconstructing the steps that his wife had taken when she fought for her life. Daniel later said that he went through the process of checking her pulse, but from the gruesome scene and the amount of blood there, it was obvious to him that Pamela was dead. He called 911 and police were there 12 minutes later. Neighbors told investigators that they remembered this happening at around 6 p.m. because that's when they heard Daniel start screaming. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Vitale met Daniel Horowitz in the late 90s. She had been married before to a man named Mario, who she met in London, England, while she was working there as a flight attendant. They moved to Minneapolis, her hometown, and had two children. Eventually, the couple divorced, and Pamela moved to California in 1978. While she was in California, she did some work in L.A. as an independent movie producer. Meanwhile, Daniel was making a huge name for himself in the legal community. In addition to his trial work, he also was a legal analyst. So he commented on cases like the Michael Jackson molestation case for MSNBC. He was friends with Nancy Grace and became very well known in his field. He met Pamela through mutual friends. According to her obituary, 
When they met, they were supposed to discuss a screenplay he had been working on that was based on one of his cases. He said, But once I met her, I fell completely in love and no longer cared about the script. After working in the entertainment industry, Pamela later worked for a company. But after the company got sold, she started working with Daniel's law firm, maintaining databases. Despite the fact that both Daniel and Pamela were very successful, the couple lived a modest life. They lived in a mobile home on a large piece of property while they waited for their dream home to be built nearby. Daniel said they lived in this small home for 10 years. He said they never really needed much when they were together. They were in love and happy. Sadly, they never got to move into their dream home. An autopsy revealed that Pamela's cause of death was blunt trauma to the head. By 9.15 p.m. on that Saturday, technicians from the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department Crime Lab were on the scene processing evidence. They saw blood on the floor and on the walls near the body. They also saw a plastic storage cube by the front door with a shoe print in blood on top of the lid. Dr. Brian Peterson, who conducted the autopsy, said later in court that most of Pamela's injuries were abrasions, scrapes, and lacerations, which, according to court documents, mean they were crushing or tearing-type injuries that are caused by blunt force. Someone had brutally beat Pamela to death and hit her so many times that experts could not figure out how many blows had been struck. Though the doctor was able to determine that she had eight distinct injuries on the right side of her head, 11 on the back of her head, and seven on the left side. The blows separated Pamela's scalp and exposed bone, but they did not cause her skull to fracture. Because of this, Dr. Peterson believed that the weapon was probably something with a flatter surface, like a rock, rather than, for example, something like a golf club, which experts believe would have caused those deeper skull fractures. Pamela suffered other injuries, too. There was bleeding in one of her neck muscles. She had a bone fracture to her nose, and two of her teeth had broken. This happened, experts believe, when the killer forced her face against the carpet while hitting her on the back of the head. She also had scratches all over her upper body, fractures to her left hand that caused the bone to be exposed, and bruising on her right foot. Dr. Peterson concluded that these injuries were probably defensive. He said that she probably got those injuries when she was kicking out at her attacker. Basically, he said, at that point, Pamela was trying to get anything between her and the force being inflicted. He said that the weapon was most likely a smaller, irregularly shaped weapon, a hard object like a rock. Because, he said, a heavier object like a golf club or baseball bat would most likely have caused deeper skull fractures. This was a prolonged attack. Dr. Peterson said the perpetrator or perpetrator's hand may have been swollen or injured while they were hitting Pamela. They found touch DNA, presumably of the killer, on Pamela's foot when she had kicked out to defend herself. And on her back, she had what Dr. Peterson described as three intersecting superficial incisions. Each was approximately four inches in length. There were two horizontal and two vertical, forming an H-shape. The incisions were made while blood was still circulating in Pamela's body. She had also suffered a deep abdominal stab wound. Dr. Peterson said this was done either just before or shortly after Pamela died. He couldn't be sure which. She had been attacked right inside her front door. 
And from the blood smearing on the door and the, the spatter patterns, it looked like she had tried to shut the door on her attacker and almost made it. But then right before the door shut, the killer was able to force it back open. Then the killer closed the door from the inside. Investigators said they knew this because there were marks on the inside of the front door that appeared as though they'd been made with a long sleeve shirt. Pamela was wearing a T-shirt. There was also blood spatter on the inside of the door. So whoever came in probably hit her instantly. And then once she was down on her knees, they kept hitting. There were finger marks in blood with fabric prints. So the killer had worn gloves and walked around the house. The criminalist who processed the scene was later asked in court about a couple of flashlights found inside the house that were also covered in blood. He said they could have been used to strike some of the blows, but in his opinion, they were not the main murder weapon. In the kitchen, detectives found an opened water bottle and a bowl on the counter. They both had blood on them. There was also blood found on a mug in the sink. There was a hand swipe in blood on the far wall of the hallway bathroom, and also some contact transfers on the shower curtain and the hot water knob of the shower. Police questioned Daniel, who, through his grief, was totally cooperative. They quickly ruled him out as a suspect. So then they wondered if the killer could have been someone who was targeting Daniel, maybe one of his criminal defendants, or someone involved in one of his high-profile cases, like the Susan Polk case. But soon, they were focusing on someone much closer to home, the couple's neighbor, a 16-year-old named Scott Dileski. Scott and his mother, Esther Fielding, lived at 1050 Hunsaker Canyon Road, just down the road from Pamela and Daniel's house. Daniel told investigators that he had never actually met Scott, but he had met his mother. He'd done some free legal work for her in the past. She was involved in some kind of bad business deal and needed to get out of it, he said, so he helped her out. This shocked the community because this was a peaceful place. All the neighbors knew each other, and it was very safe. No one bothered to lock their doors. It was almost, as some media reports described it, like a commune. But some people in the neighborhood said that in that close-knit community, Scott was an outsider. He was five foot six and weighed only 110 pounds. At school, people did make fun of him because he tended to wear things that were thought of as a little off the wall, like trench coats. But a lot of people described him as intelligent and funny. Scott's parents, Esther Fielding and Ken Dileski, separated when he was young, and he and his mom moved around a lot. Money was tight, and when he was six years old, his mom remarried. He later told a counselor that he was abused by his stepfather from ages six to nine, according to a court report. His father, Ken Dileski, and his mother say they were unaware of any abuse. In 1999, Esther and Scott moved in with a family of some of her friends, the Curials. They lived in a plywood lean-to that the Curials built for them on that property. This was a rough life. For years, Scott lived without electricity, plumbing, heat, or running water. He was able to shower only once a week, and he had to go to a friend's house to do that. The attorney also referred to what she called the narcissism of Esther, Scott's mom, saying that Esther had described the experience of living basically in poverty as fun and an adventure. There were investigations twice by Children and Family Services, according to CNN, but the cases were apparently closed and no further action was taken. By 2002, the Curials had finished construction of their dream home. Fred Curiel and his family all moved in, along with Scott and his mother, and a third family. It was a lot of people, 
but it was a big house. And finally, Scott had his own bedroom. Then, in August 2002, according to court documents, Scott's half-sister died in a car accident. This was a real tragedy, and it was a bizarre accident. Scott's half-sister was the passenger in a car. The driver was trying to commit suicide and ended up killing her. He was close to her, and according to his family, this death hit him hard. He had always been kind of a goth, and after the funeral, he started wearing black all the time, including black nails and black lipstick. His grades dropped, and he started talking more and more to his girlfriend, Jenna Reddy, about dark subjects. After his sophomore year, Scott dropped out of high school and started working toward getting his GED. After getting his GED in 2005, he signed up for classes at a local community college in anthropology and psychology. His mom owned a cafe for a while, and later a bagel shop where Scott worked as a baker. He and his mom worked closely, and friends and family say that she would do anything for her son. Sometimes he would wake up as early as 4 a.m. and stay until closing, according to court documents. So during this time, police are trying to figure out, was Scott just the weird neighborhood kid, or could he be a budding psychopath? About three weeks before Pamela was murdered, Scott's behavior started changing even more. He started taking long walks in the woods, which, according to the Curials, was not something he'd done before. He was also doing a lot of writing and artwork during this time. And again, a lot of these things can be interpreted in two ways. A lot of kids draw deeply disturbing things and listen to heavy metal and different kinds of music when they're teenagers. This doesn't mean that they're gonna go on to kill. It's only looking back at these things that they seem sinister. Scott's drawings included a picture of a man holding a severed head and a knife with red coloring, a face with the mouth apparently stitched up with X's, and a drawing containing a razor blade, swastika, and a knife. That drawing contained the words, just like Jesus Christ, just like fun with knives, just like Rose is red, just like Rose is dead. He also made a drawing showing someone in a long coat, like the kind he used to wear to school, that read, guns don't kill people, I kill people. And another one that read, before Manson, before Bundy, there was Gein, referring to serial killer Ed Gein. But we know from past cases, from Columbine to the West Memphis Three, who were basically convicted just because they wore black and listened to heavy metal, we have to be really careful when we're drawing a line between teen angst and something that could be more dangerous. But there was something else in Scott's work. Prosecutors later pointed out that many of his drawings and writings included his signature, symbols containing intersecting horizontal and vertical lines, a signature that looked a lot like the cuts found on Pamela's back. Some of his friends said that for a long time, Scott had been obsessed with the idea of killing someone. But then something else came to light, a possible financial motive, because it turned out that for a while, Scott had been committing fraud. The latest fraud started when Scott and his 16-year-old friend, Robin, who had been close friends since the eighth grade, made a plan to grow their own marijuana. But they needed money to buy the equipment. So in the summer of 2005, Brian suggested that they use stolen credit cards. They used one of their neighbors, a guy named John Halpin's credit card, 
they used the number to buy growing lights from a site called Vaporwares. On September 17th, they placed their first order, and they did this at a time when they apparently knew that this neighbor, John, would be out of town. That transaction went through. So a couple of weeks later, Scott brought the vaporizer over to Robin's house. So the plan they hatched was basically to steal a billing address and credit card number from several of their neighbors. And then they would put the shipping address down at Scott's mom's house. While they were figuring out the logistics of this plan shortly before the murder, Robin told Scott they needed to keep the charges small so they wouldn't get caught. Scott replied in an email using all caps. He wrote that stealthiness is the number one priority. They placed another order, this time using another neighbor, Karen Schneider's credit cards. She lived next door to Daniel and Pamela. On Thursday, October 13th, Karen was looking through her credit card charges. She noticed a company called Specialty Lighting that she wasn't familiar with, so she emailed the company. Specialty Lighting's owner, Jackie, responded to her email and faxed copies of the orders to her. Now, Karen knew at this point that she had not placed an order for a grow light system. And she also noticed that her supposed order had Esther Fielding, Scott's mother's name and address on it, as the shipping contact. And for some reason, Daniel and Pamela's phone number was listed as a contact. Daniel and Pamela's number was unlisted. But people in the neighborhood had it because everyone was used to looking out for each other. So they had a neighborhood watch system. Everyone had a list with everyone else's name and phone number on it. Anyway, the company owner, Jackie, decided she was not going to ship that merchandise. She sent an email to the address listed on the orders, which was actually Esther Fielding's email address, stating that the orders couldn't be processed. Then Jackie told investigators something weird happened. She got a call from a male caller asking about the issue with the orders. She said she was surprised by that call because, in her experience, people who submitted fraudulent orders didn't normally call and try to explain what they were doing. Instead, they would just move on and place the order with another company. She said it was also weird because the caller to her sounded like someone young trying to sound older. She told the caller she was not going to be able to process that order. Then, she said, the caller told her, okay, that's fine. In what she described as a very polite fashion, which she found to be weird. On the day before the murders, the caller called Jackie again. This time, he asked if the merchandise could be shipped to the billing address on the orders. Now in this next call, by this point, Jackie says she's getting very suspicious. So she told him the credit card company declined the charges and told them basically they'd need to contact the credit card company. She said the caller accepted that information and never called again. According to phone records, the calls to Jackie came from the Curiel's house, where Scott and his mom lived. After that, prosecutors said that Scott called Robin after school. He said some of it hadn't gone through, and he was going to try to find a way to make it work. As police were trying to establish the timelines, Pamela's computer gave them a lot of clues. A forensic examination of Pamela's computer showed that it was used beginning at 8.07 a.m. on the day of the murder. She was doing her usual surfing, the everyday news websites and other sites she'd been on before. The last use was logged at 10.12 a.m., and there was no further activity on that computer. And during that time, Scott had some suspicious activity going on. Police talked to Kim Curiel. She said she saw Scott come in at around 10.20 in the morning. She noticed that his hands were shaking, and she saw scratches on his nose and cheek. 
When she asked him about it, she said Scott told her that he fell down and got whacked by a bush while he was looking for a waterfall on one of his nature walks. A sheriff's detective determined that it would have taken about 10 minutes to walk from Pamela's house to Scott's house. Another resident of the house who rented a room from the Curials also saw Scott's marks. He told the investigators he went downstairs to make breakfast sometime between around 10.20 and 11 a.m. He said Scott told him that he walked into a bush. Around noon, another person living in the house noticed the scratch. She said Scott told her that he had slipped while climbing up some rocks, grabbed for a branch, and hit his hand on a rock. Kim Curiel's brother called the house that afternoon, too. And he said when he talked to Scott, Scott told him that his hand and wrist were swollen after falling in a ravine. Then Scott called his girlfriend, Jenna. She picked him up at around 2 o'clock that afternoon, and they hung out. At some point, he called Robin and told him he wanted to come over and pick up some pot. So at around 8 p.m., they went to Robin's house. Jenna said she noticed the scratches on Scott's face, too, and saw that his right wrist and hand were swollen and that his arm was tender. He told her basically the same story, that he had fallen and hurt his hand and that a bush had scratched him in the face. Later that night, Scott's mom called Jenna's cell phone and said she needed to talk to Scott. Then, according to Jenna, Scott borrowed his friend Robin's phone and called his mom back. Esther said that there was a rumor that someone had been killed. She warned her son not to come home. So at this point, Scott and Jenna and their friend Robin start talking about who it could have been. According to Jenna, Scott said it was probably David Horowitz's house because of his stature as an attorney. Scott also mentioned that he had seen someone on his walk that morning and wondered if that person could have been the killer. At one point, according to Jenna, he recited a rhyme about Lizzie Borden and 40 Wax and said the most painless way to kill someone would be to shoot them. But if you really wanted to cause pain, you would bludgeon the person. Jenna said she felt upset due to what she saw as Scott's lack of emotion about the murder. They spent the rest of the night hanging out at Jenna's, watching TV and drinking absinthe. On Sunday, they went to a Renaissance fair. Finally, they went back to Scott's house. Jenna told investigators that she took a nap, and when she woke up, all hell had kind of broken loose. Scott was freaking out because he said that some people in the house were accusing him of credit card fraud. He told Jenna that his mom, Esther, had told him to pack his things because his room might be searched by police. Then he gave Jenna a black and red backpack and told her to keep it. Inside were items, including a pair of shoes that he'd worn, and several books, Silence of the Lambs, Fathers of the Dead, Hannibal, Absinthe, and Black Sunday. He told Jenna to hang on to that bag, and she did, until eventually she gave it back to Scott's mom. And Esther did not take this stuff to the police. Instead, she hid it in an abandoned car. When Esther came back to her house and saw Scott there, she told him that before the police came in to search the house and his room, he would have one chance to get rid of anything related to the credit card fraud. Scott was arrested and pleaded not guilty to charges of special circumstances murder and burglary. Esther was arrested too, on suspicion of being an accessory after the fact to murder because police believed that she was hiding evidence. After spending a little time in jail, 
Esther agreed to cooperate, so she cut a deal. The charges against her were dropped in exchange for her testimony against Scott. She turned Scott's shoes over to the police, and investigators were able to match the shoe print to the pattern of shoe prints found at Pamela's crime scene. Scott's trial started in 2006. The defense attorney brought in character witnesses talking about what a good kid Scott had been. The attorney called Scott a Boy Scout in goth clothing. But a lot of legal experts thought this was a mistake because once she brought up the character issue, they say she opened the door to cross-examination and to Scott's girlfriend Jenna being questioned about the dark side of their sexual relationship. Jenna testified that she and Scott had experimented with pain during their relationship and that her tolerance for pain had grown. This is all, by the way, while her parents are in the courtroom watching her. Jenna also said that she and Scott had discussed removing certain organs while people were still alive. She said Scott had a fascination with vivisection and wanted to see how the human body would function without certain organs, for example, the kidney. The prosecution's theory was that Scott was inspired by Jack the Ripper and that when he stabbed Pamela in the stomach, he was trying to cut her organs out of her body. They painted a picture of him as someone who had fantasized about killing and then carried out his fantasy. But it seemed to be the threat of discovery of the credit card fraud that was the factor that led to the murder on that day. The day before the murder, Karen Schneider called the police and told them about the credit card fraud. At the time, this was kind of playing out as a neighborhood drama. She said she thought the charges might be some sort of payback. She thought Esther Fielding might have done this because she had accidentally hit Esther's dog a few weeks earlier with her car. Karen arranged for a road association meeting with all the neighbors to take place on Sunday, October 16th. She told everyone in the neighborhood about the credit card fraud. When that meeting happened, talk turned to what had happened to Pamela and the brutal murder. They were all there, Kim and Fred Curiel, Esther Fielding, and Karen. Karen showed the bills with the fraudulent charges to Esther, basically accused Esther of targeting her because of the incident with the dog. But Esther said she had no idea what was going on. But this whole incident tipped them off that it could have been Scott making those calls. So Fred Curiel, who is a computer consultant, went home and started looking through all the computers in the house, including Scott's. And even though the browser history had been erased on Scott's computer, Fred was able to figure out that the computer had been used to access the specialty lighting website where those fraudulent orders had been placed. On Monday, October 17th, they confronted Scott about the credit card fraud. Scott completely denied that he had done anything wrong. He said he must have been hacked or someone else could have accessed his computer somehow. So when he was 17 years old, Scott went to trial and was tried as an adult for Pamela's murder. On the stand, Esther admitted that she had taken some items to her sister's house. They belonged to Scott, and she admitted that she knew that her son was being charged with murder when she burned those items, including gloves, an anarchist diary, and papers that had credit card information for two of their neighbors. She said, I pretty much burned evidence that was burnable. But she said that she did this because she truly believed that her son was not capable of committing these murders, but she thought that his diary could be misconstrued. Esther really played down her role in telling her son to get rid of his stuff. She said that when she made the comments, she had not made a connection between the credit card fraud 
in Pamela's murder. She cried when she was on the stand and said that turning her son in was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. I had to do it. I had to know. We know that she burned some items, but she also turned in a few. She turned in a black coat, a black ski mask, and a knife that she had found in the backpack that Jenna gave her. She said, by the way, that she had forgotten about the knife until spending time in jail. Daniel Horowitz later said that he does not buy that story. He said in an interview with the Heritage Foundation that was shown on YouTube that he absolutely believes that Scott's mother, Esther Fielding, believed that Scott was capable of killing and had covered up a lot more than she admitted to. He said that he believed that Scott took more items, including Pamela's eyeglasses, and kept them as trophies. And he said that Esther wasn't moved to do the right thing by her conscience. It was fear. He said that Esther went out to her vehicle and started taking out bloody items, but she saw a press helicopter overhead, and she was afraid that she would be seen removing evidence. That's why, he said, she took some items several hours away to her sister's house and burned them. Daniel said that he believed the diaries she burned were crucial. He believed they would reveal Scott's detailed plan for the murder. But any answers they had, unfortunately, went up in flames. Investigators did get back a duffel bag from the abandoned vehicle, including bloody clothing. And between the items in the backpack, the duffel bag, and the items that Esther gave them, they had a ton of DNA evidence. There was DNA from Scott and from Pamela on the ski mask that was used during the murder. Scott's DNA was also found on the bottom of Pamela's foot. Daniel Horowitz said he is extremely thankful for the media attention on this case. He said, you need to put pressure on people and make them believe that they're going to get caught. Thank God for that press helicopter. Even after detectives found the bloody clothing and the footprint and the other evidence, Esther has said that she does not believe that Scott is guilty. According to court documents, she said that she doesn't believe he could have committed the murder because the sight of blood when his blood was being drawn would make him feel faint. But a lot of other people, police, prosecutors, and Daniel Horowitz, believe that there is an overwhelming amount of evidence against Scott. Not just the physical evidence, like the fact that the blood on the clothes was a match to him. There was his own statements to people, his contradictory statements about how he injured his hand and got scratches on his face. He also told several people, including his girlfriend, that he was worried that his DNA might be on Pamela or under her fingernails. And when they asked him why, he said that because on the day she was murdered, she stopped her car and opened the door and grabbed him. So, in other words, a lot of people believe that he was trying to create a story for why his skin was under her fingernails. This still haunts Daniel Horowitz because he said he believes that Scott was keeping his lie close to the truth. She did grab him, but it was when he was inside her house beating her to death. Through the trial, one legal expert told the San Francisco Chronicle that this case has gone from a credit card scam to a kid that appears to be capable of being a psychopathic killer. Scott was convicted of Pamela's murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and sent to Corcoran State Prison. But in another wild twist, this was not the end of the story. Because in 2018, Scott was given a reduced sentence of 25 years to life. This new sentence came after the passage of Senate Bill 394, a law that gives juveniles tried as adults who were sentenced to life without parole a chance to eventually be freed. 
Daniel Horowitz testified in front of the Senate against this bill. He said that it's ironic because, as a criminal defense attorney, he has a long history of being liberal and believing in civil rights activism. He successfully defended many people and stopped a lot of defendants from being put to death. But he said that it's a mistake to believe that just because someone's a youth offender that every single youth offender can be rehabilitated. He said he understands the reason behind the law. He said he's seen cases where, for example, a young gang member is sentenced to life because they were sitting in a car during a drive-by shooting. So he understands why the laws need reform. He said, basically, make no mistake about it, he believes that if Scott gets out, he will kill again. He said in his recent interview with the Heritage Foundation that he has no doubt Scott is a cold-blooded killer. He pointed to the cross with two horizontal lines, the double cross, across Pamela's back. He said that Scott was so evil that he tried to carve out Pamela's internal organs, probably while she was still alive. But in the end, he said he was most proud of his wife. Because he was a criminal defense attorney dealing with murder cases and violent people, he said that he and Pamela had talked a lot about how to survive if someone attacked you. And he said, they always agreed with the advice that's normally given to people by police and the FBI. He said, you fight because nobody is going to let you live. You fight like hell. And that's what Pamela did. And because she kicked out at her attacker, the kick left touch trace DNA. Without that DNA, Daniel said Scott might have never been convicted. The only blessing from this is that Pamela was so tough that he only killed one person, he said. She saved lives. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?